Hello, this is the Consequential Podcast. I'm Dave Convery. He's Roger Hart. Hello. Today, we're talking about time travel in a comicsy sort of context. But, Roger, if you could travel through time and, and fix one thing in your horrible, wretched life, what would it be? Oh, God. Um, ah, I, I don't know. There are just, just, just a horrifying... It's just a sea of regrets, isn't it? A horrifying it? litany of minor... Minor mistakes. I mean, just today, I'd, I'd, have, I'd really quite like the bread dough I made to have been a bit stiffer. So what have you been reading? <laughs> oh, well, you know, it's, 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 it's that or avoiding the actual big mistakes in my life. And no one really wants to hear about the horrifying things that have happened to me. No one wants to... No, we don't, we don't want to dwell on your regrets. I'd have quite liked to have not been awake through a portion of some surgery. There was a, a story in the news this week about uh, how genuinely traumatic and affecting that yeah, can be. Yeah, it's about one in 3,000 people, I think. Oh. So what you're saying is that you're very special. Uh, not particularly. I was just quite unlucky. I mean, it was the tail end. No, sorry. It was the It was the very... They put me under quickly enough. It wasn't especially bad, but I had some fairly unpleasant nightmares for a while. How would time travel help with this? I mean, because you're not an anesthesiologist, so really the best thing you can do is time travel back into that room... The exact moment that you're waking up and punch yourself really hard in the head? Yes. Now, not only would that solve the problem, but young me was fucking insufferable. So imagine how satisfying that would be. You'd have woken up thinking that the doctors really just fucking hated you, even when you were unconscious. Food for thought. Food for thought. <laughs> Thanks, time travel. Yeah. What have you been reading? I have been reading... Um, I just picked up the... Um, a new image single, um, Copperhead. Copperhead um, by um, Jay Fabera and Scott Gudluski, I think. The pronunciation eluded me a little bit on you some of You've got weird names, guys. Sorry. Well, yeah, basically fine. I just wasn't sure what to do with some of them. Anyway. Um, the letters? The letters in their names? Hush. Right. How's Copperhead? It's actually... Um, I mean, it's only issue one. So far, not... Well, I, it's good exhibition. So it's a it's a space western in a slightly firefly mode. There's some there's some back matter that acknowledges yeah space western is not particularly original, but you know we think ours is fun. It is. It's nicely drawn. There's a bit of occasional reliance on slightly computery textures, but it does work. The color palette's very well chosen. It's got a slightly carnivalish sort of. I thought the it's got a dust bowl thing. Yeah, I like that. The only thing I spotted was that the text was at a much higher resolution. I've been getting annoyed by lettering this week. That could just be the really shitty native PDF reader on my surface. Could be. Um, no, it's it's so far it's a good book. It's uh, You've got a new sheriff coming to town, fairly classic premise. Um, lady with her young son. It's a mining town on a frontier world in the reasonably relative af- recent aftermath of a war. There appear to be at least two main sort of human-looking race and another another race who may or may not have been defeated in the war were involved in it. There's a little bit of tension. Um, he's her second in command. There's some resentment. She goes to sort out a domestic dispute, gets into a fight. Shortly later, there's a murder on the same property, and her son's just run off into the desert to help a neighbor find a lost dog and has been... Um, the, the final sort of the cliffhanger is that someone big and scary is looming over him. And, you know, there's a local mine owner who has been styled as your classic corrupt local big businessman in the Western, but may or may not turn out to be. Okay. In, in, in the midst of all this, there's a lot of nice little sci-fi tropes being thrown around. It's just, it's a good one of those. It's a, It feels like a promising piece of good, solid pulp. I like it. I think post-Deadwood, there's a temptation to make the, uh, the, the corrupt businessman something of an anti-hero. Mm. Um, because just because elsewhere engine's fun, a lot of people who were going to write this sort of thing watched Deadwood. I think this one's either going to turn out to be a straight-up villain or a slightly sinister, genuinely nice guy. I would quite enjoy that if he was... I quite like the idea of the, the notional corrupt businessman actually being lovely but not quite being able to shake everyone's suspicion because he fits the prototype so well. Fair. Might be boring to write that, though. So this is a new ongoing series? It seems to be. And you're reading an ongoing series? Well, um, Image do a... I, I signed up for their mailing list because they do great stuff. And this popped into my inbox and I thought it looked cool. I'd look at you know, a couple of panels. I thought it just looked like fun. So, I, yes, this I have actually bought a single. I swore off buying singles 
six years ago. And I technically, technically, I have fallen off the wagon. But, you know, one shot isn't really drinking, right? So I find skipping straight past the problem that you have with alcohol. (laughs) Um, I was going to go completely without calling you an alcoholic this week. You fucked up. Probably because of your drinking. This potentially village is lovely, isn't it? It is rather nice. Would you like to tell us about it? I, admit, I know you fucking would. I think we've had it before on the podcast. It's the um, Louis Jadot Beaujolais Village, fairly standard. Everyone knows that one, right? Um, well, so Louis Jadot and Georges de Boeuf are the two big ticket, like brand name Beaujolais. Um, George de Boeuf. Yes. Beefy George. Yes. Old Beefy. Old Beefy George. Yeah. You were drinking his uh, Beefy George's Beaujolais Niveau, I thought, last year. That's what we were drinking. Right. Well. So the, the Georges de Berth one is the one with all the slightly florid labels, and the um, Louis Jadot is the one is the one with the labels that look like a piss take of a French wine label. This means nothing to me. Oh, Vienna. Um, yeah, it's the it's fine. It's it's just a it's a perfectly standard, really quite tasty Beaujolais Village with that slightly sort of gentle fruity note. I wouldn't usually pay sticker price for it. I think there's some brand inflation, but quite often it's got money off it and I buy it. Right. So what were we talking about before your over-intellectualized drinking problem got in the way? Um, Goodness knows, it could have been anything. No, we were talking about Copperhead and you had some kind of question or observation and I just talked over you like a cunt. Yeah, that seems about standard. What else have you been reading? Um, I have been reading The Property by Ruti Modan. Um, I reread From Hell. I re- have been reading Trillium by Jeff Lemire and a couple of other odds and ends. Tell us about The Property. So, um, this is. This would be on my favourites list so far. For the year? Yeah, I mean, we're going to have to start compiling those soon. It's um. Was it actually published this year? I'll have to check, but I think it I th- was. I'm not sure. It was either early this year or um, late last year. It's one of those things that's been lurking around the only bookshop around here that sells indie mm. stuff. It's been on their shelves noticeably for quite a while. So Ruta Modan made a bit of a splash with Exit Wounds. It's possibly a slightly ghoulish, unintentional pun. Um, and this is her second piece. Uh, she's, I think she's from Israel, and this is about a, um, this is about two generations, a granddaughter and grandmother of an Israeli Jewish family heading back to Warsaw to pick up some of their family roots, but deliberately playing against type in a number of ways. So it's not a kind of, they're picking up the roots. Similar to We Won't See Jerusalem. Yeah. So... They're going to reclaim, nominally, it turns out something else going on. They're going nominally to reclaim the property, which uh, the granddaughter, uh, Mika, I think, I'm so bad at remembering names, but the granddaughter um, imagines to be a, a large building, maybe a factory, because their you know, grandmother has drilled into them, but they were quite well to do before they, they, fled, they fled Poland. But they, um, they fled before the war for mysterious family reasons that become important. Um, and they're quite aggressively not going on the conventional heritage tour. They're going to sort out the property, and that is that, and they'll stay no longer than they need to. Why would we need to do this? this, and this? There's, there's a certain degree of contrarianism both from her and her grandmother. And her grandmother is this wonderful, slightly humorous, cranky pensioner. The opening scene is glorious. She gets into a fight with airport security about whether she can take a bottle of water on um, on board the plane, chews out the young security attendant, and then insists on standing there and drinking an entire bottle of water holding up the queue. Um, just in principle, because she's not going to waste it. God damn it! Um, so she's a she's a brilliant kind of cantankerous granny who turns out to be kind of up to something, and then falls apart when she, she has a bit of a breakdown when her scheme doesn't really play out. And then there's there's another character, um, the husband, a new, or fiancé of the um, young character's aunt, um, who they run into on the plane and is a splendid grotesque. 
he's just 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 an awful dick, just kind of slimy and pushy and not actually evil, just gently repellent in that slightly Coen Brothers way. Believably horrible. Yeah. Uh, who's the, who's the guy from a serious a serious man? Is it Saul Abelman something like yeah. that? Yeah. He he's like that. He's that kind of just relentless. If you met him for 2 minutes, something would put you back up, but you wouldn't be able to call him an arsehole and then after that you just become aware that this is a terrible terrible person. Yeah, it's that sort of thing of um, the the thing that really rankles is why can they not see it? Yes. Or why does anyone who actually likes them not see mm. that they are ostensibly monstrous? And that this character turns out to have some good reasons for it. But there's there's lots of conflicting scheming about who gets to inherit the property and the property turns out to not be quite what everyone thinks. And it all goes back to the reasons that grandmother left Poland, which is to do with the romance and her kind of rekindling and interaction with with someone she knew a long time ago. Uh, it's just a beautiful character piece. I, I hate the art. I, I can't stand it. Um, but it's not bad on any level. It's just, it's in a style that really bugs me. It's, it looks a lot like Guy de Lille. Right. Um, it's in that willfully simplified style. Simple palette, simple line work. It works, it works for this because it lets the characters do the talking, but it just bugs me. Something about that style just really gets my back up. Stuff like that is, I mean, that, that sort of level of iconographic abstraction is always quite good when you rely heavily on, um, mannerism and, um, sort of facial expression yeah. for a lot of, a and there's lot of lots inference. of little gestures and bits of panel arrangement with people. Uh, one of the characters is a cartoonist, so there's a wonderful disconnect because he draws sweeping, slightly baroque, almost photorealistic stuff, which you see on his sketchbook in the middle of this massively abstracted world and it's it's a bit of a gimmick but it, it amuses me but now this this is it's a family drama with occasional shades of family tragedy and family comedy in that very coen brothersy style and i loved it it's really good excellent so so you're so, probably going to call me an alcoholic and an asshole or something no so i was uh, i was going to say in terms of books of the year hmm. it is definitely time to start yeah Thinking about that. Um, just a, a little tip-off for the listeners there, that it is nearly the end of the year. Basically, if you haven't looked at a calendar or done anything for a while, um, we are close to the end of 2014. Ain't life grand. It's slightly depressing. The leaves are starting to fall, which always makes me think of that Larkin poem, um, Afternoons, which is beautifully depressing. It's probably worth pointing out at this stage that Roger has spent a lot of time on his own lately and and he's just worse than normal. I've got six weeks off work and I'm nominally writing a cookbook and I've gone peculiar because I'm not really talking to anyone. Except you, dear listeners. Except you. Listeners? So Trillium, then. <laughs> yes, Trillium is um, it's a very different thing. It's Jeff Lemire. I've been meaning to read The Underwater Welder forever and just never seem to get around to it. I just uh, bought a copy in the Top Shelf Comics sale. Hey there, kids. Top Shelf Comics sale on $3 for the physical oh. copy. What? Um, for the physical copy? Yes. It's like 12 quid. Yeah. So it's um, it's crazy money getting stuff shipped to Europe. It's £50 flat um, shipping fee, so you need to oh, buy so a lot. Oh, so you want a lot of stuff. Um, but, um, no, have you submitted your order yet? Because... I'll take one if you haven't. Yeah, I've, I've got my comics mule to pick stuff mm. up, but you may uh, be able to do the same. Mm. Um, anyway, it's, it looks beautiful and it sounds like, well, I was going to say fun, but it's really not fun. It sounds achingly depressing. But That's typical of his stuff, really. I mm. mean, Essex County is quite depressing. Mm. Sweet Tooth is definitely yeah. depressing. But so, but this, um, this is a new Vertigo paperback. Um, reasonable, kind of, their standard kind of slightly aping image with a low entry price, but Oh, God, their print quality is terrible. I, I'm just, let's just take a moment to appreciate how appallingly shitty a lot of Vertigo's paperback print quality is. So, <clears throat> I generally don't mind it. So, the, a lot of the Vertigo stuff I would buy is their older stuff, like mm. Transmet and Swamp Thing and um, Hellblazer. Um, and it's stuff that would be printed on that sort of paper originally, the sort of newsprinty style. Yeah, but I think I've blown my nose on higher quality things. But with stuff like that, it means that it preserves the colouring. Sure. Which is worthwhile. Because if you look at stuff like the Marvel Masterworks, which would have been printed on that mm. originally, and then they've tried to create the colouring for high gloss paper, mm. 
this is pretty nerdy even by our standards. Yeah. Anyway, the Marvel, oh, no, I appreciate that doesn't work. Although, if you remember, the essentials were on the low quality paper, but they were black and white. They're black and white, so mm. it's kind of it's kind of uh, irrelevant. But some yeah, of, some the masterworks of the, are the are the the color equivalents. Yeah, and so, but, but the masterworks are dreadful. But some of the reissues, like the Age of Apocalypse reissue, was on the original grubby paper. Yeah, and it does preserve the, preserve the color. It does work quite well. Yeah, so I much prefer some of that. And DC have done it with things mm. like um, Fourth World, the Jack Kirby yeah. stuff, where it's a giant collection, but it's on that paper because it just it just looks better. I mean, this is fine, but... Um, but yeah, Trillium came out this year. So. Stylistically, it's very similar to um, what Kint's doing in Mind Management, with the slightly painty, slightly soft. Um, shifting general palette is doing a lot of the heavy lifting, shifting intensity of line work or kind of... The, the extent to which it gets watercolour in blurry versus clean and crisp, that shifts in and out. It is doing a lot of similar things. And that's published beautifully. It's a gorgeous dark horse hardback. Like there's, there's no need. To... Sorry, I'm. This is, this is not important. This is, this is just not important. It's okay. Um, I'm going to go off on one later. So you have your moment. Um, it's a good book. So Trillium is a slightly time travelly sci-fi, and we'll talk about some of the time travelly bits later, I guess. But or maybe earlier. Um, I don't know. That's David. Continue. That's David attempting a slow clap, not just, you know, whacking his scrotum into the microphone or anything. Yeah, it was a close run thing. You, you looked like you were about to get up. I was worried. So Trillium is, it's kind of a two-part story. You've, you've got two characters, uh, Nika and William. Nika is from the far future, 23rd, 24th century or something. She's scientist, sort of an explorer. William is... From 1921, 1922, something like that, he's a soldier come explorer. And we start out following following Nika's story, and it's got a wonderful, big, weird sci-fi sort of... There's a few things in common with Prophet in the, the... It's situated in the middle of a mad sweep of a universe that's never fully explained, but just seems strange and threatening. And um, there's a sentient virus called The Call, which is hunting humanity, like, aggressively. It's when the book opens, they're down to about... 5,000 humans, and by the end of it, you end up you're down to about 300. And they're on a colonial uh, colonial outpost, and they are trying to parlay with the native populace, who are weird, pointy-headed, possibly plant-based aliens, to get access to a plant that they cultivate, which they think is the secret to resisting the virus. And Nika's commander is a sort of caricature hard-ass and is insisting on results, what have you. So Nico strays further into their territory and ends up eating this flower, which sort of maybe enables her to communicate with the aliens a bit. Wanders into a temple and then finds herself in the 1920s face-to-face with William, who has gone on a jungle expedition and found a similar-looking temple. So there's this weird twisty thing where somehow between the temples and the flowers, people can transport, transport between sort of through periods of space and time and gets sort of flipped around. And a bunch of stuff happens which leads to Nika and William's lives becoming intertwined. They both end up almost as each other. Um, so the timelines get weird and entangled and um, Nika ends up as him, as, as a sort of gender-swapped version of him in a in an alternate 1920s. And he ends up as a gender-swapped version of her in an alternate far future setting but they both half remember what was going on and it's just so the it, it, you've got a wonderful structure to the book which is it leads up to the the swap and then there's a separate story leading to kind of the disentanglement and then there's a resolution and it's it's very well put together and it's beautifully drawn the artwork is sensational in places i like um jeff lemisov it's not what you would think of as traditionally pretty no no but it's it's it can be beautiful um Sweet Tooth, I think, was a little bit more sort of restrained by production timelines because it was very much more of a um, sort of standard line work inking colouring. Well, Sweet Tooth felt like a big ticket series as well. It felt like this was the latest. It felt like why the last man saga in in that sort of in that sort of idiom. It felt like DC wanted one of those. Yeah, I not, don't think it was bad. It. it was by all accounts good. I didn't read it. But. I'm about halfway through it. Um, is it good? It is good with the caveats that it's 
very similar to why the last man in a mm. lot of places and similar to walking dead and anything post-apocalyptic mm. because that's why i didn't really i've just got an irrational thing i don't like post-apocalyptic if you have a post-apocalyptic story where you have people wandering from place to place you are inevitably going to run into storylines about people who are trustworthy people who are initially not trustworthy but redeem themselves you you just wind up going through sort of neo-feudalist tropes it's been done so many times i mean it's not a bad book. It's no. not, but there are... Have you read Mary Shelley's The Last Man? No. Should I? You, yes, it's very good. It, it's it's a very, very early sci-fi novel, but she rehearses all of this stuff in... When was that written? 17 lots. It's sort of fairly... It's fairly obvious that when you have um, pressures of low population or low resources that these are the behaviours that are going mm-hmm. to emerge. And so criticising for p- people for... Uh, addressing those sort of feels perhaps unfair, but it just means yeah. that I don't necessarily want to read a lot of post-apocalyptic stuff. Yeah, I'm sure it's very well done. It's just not my... Yeah. Essex County, on the other hand, is absolutely beautiful. and It's mm. it's black and white, and it's a very, very stark, expansive thing. Remind me, I think you talked about it before, but remind me what it is. Um, yeah, so Essex County is uh, some of his early stuff, and it's a series of sort of essentially rural family portraits and um, it sort of very initially starts with uh, just sort of fairly isolated farm kid and his escape through comics. Um, But it goes through sort of um, brotherly estrangement and just does a lot Mm. of things in this sort of small, fairly rural area. But because it's set in this rural area, it looks it's, characters as very stark against an expansive completely open background and it's just um quite lonely seeming and uh i'm not gonna say horrible but it's it's quite dispiriting in places Hmm. um i do like it though it's it's very good again it's probably cheap in the top shelf sale well gosh it's often quite cheap digitally as well it's worth picking up I'm I'm having a mixed bag of, of a times with digital comics. I'm I'm sort of enjoying it. But, mm. I generally find it's fine. So um my my use for digital Great is for the train. testing out something if I'm not sure. Or yeah, like I reread from hell digitally because I didn't want to lift the fucking thing. I'm not thing. carrying that fucker, no. I, I I do like the fact that well yeah. Given I'm taking the surface with me anyway, I'm you know, comics. Yeah, I I mean, I basically bought a tablet particularly for reading digital mm. comics, which is indulgent and and very, very... Uh, it's deeply unnecessary, but yeah. I read a lot of comics. Well, the, the, this is the thing. I, I, I wouldn't do it on a computer. No, I, I can't. I can't do it on a laptop, can't do it on a desktop. Um, black and white on a standard Kindle would be fine, but the screens are not that big. Whereas the, the the slightly funky aspect ratio on the surface, God, I love my surface, but the slightly funky aspect ratio makes it kind of really quite good for ebooks. They're a mixed bag. So we have some uh, we have some listener questions. Um, oh. Do we want to tackle those? I was going to ask you what you've been reading, but uh, uh, well, let, 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 let's let, take the listener questions. Yeah, so we've got we've got a series of questions from Liz, which, due to the vagaries of time travel, haven't arrived yet, but. Uh, the answer. So we're going to answer them now, and she'll she'll ask them later. Yes. Yeah. The answer to question one uh, is an aubergine, an entire one. Yeah, you know, it was a whole one. Yes. Uh, I, regardless of, of what the paperwork says. Do you have question two with you? Um, yes. Yes. So um, the answer to question two is it's a kind of high pitched squawking noise, followed by some vague slander about Rob Liefeld. Okay, and uh, the the third and final question: just eighteen clowns and a tar pit. Would you like to know what I've been reading? Do you tell me. Uh, so, first thing I read uh, last week was the Wrenchies by Farrell Dalrymple. The what? The Wrenchies, um, as in wrench, the tool. Hmm. Ease is that. Like when you get the munchies, but you really want to hit someone with a wrench. No, wrenchies. It's uh, it's it's like a, a a sort of Vaseline type gel for when you just want to put a wrench in you. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> it's my wine, fucker.
so the Renchies is, and this is brilliant because I didn't know we were talking about this. It's a time travel story. Yeah. Um, so in a sort of a post-apocalyptic future, and I know I said I wasn't going to read those, but this is different. Um, all of the adults are turned into um, shadow men or shadows men, depending on how grammatically pedantic the character who's talking about them is. Um, and the the only people who are left alive and human are these children who all band into various gangs, one of which is called the Wrenchies, who all have wrench symbols on them somewhere because they're aligned with this sort of secretive scientist. Um, and they got their name from a comic. And the whole thing spins out very, very quickly into this sort of time travel alternative reality story where there's a character in the present day who encountered the very first of these uh, shadow men, which he calls Dark Elves. Um, and they sort of infected him, um, but he spends the rest of his life fighting them and strung out on drugs. And when he eventually falls, gives in, um, it spawns the whole race of them and the world collapses. But midway through, you sort of encounter his neighbor who is just this sort of pure-hearted, easily bullied kid who's obsessed with comic books and makes his own superhero outfit. And he gets brought through to the future. And um, you end up with this massive series of recursive loops because it concentrates mm -hmm. on different characters in each chapter, which make it very, very difficult to tell if there's any sort of prime reality, if the whole thing's knotted together, if the whole thing even makes sense. Um, it but sounds, not in an annoying way. It sounds like a good version of what, um, good version of what Stephen Moffat often does with Huey. It sounds a bit blinky, maybe, but more intricate than that. It's really it's so it's incredibly in intricate to the extent that it sort of feels like the gears are slipping or rubbing up against mm. each other. But it's not. Well, so I'm fairly annoying. sure there's an episode of the original series Star Trek that has the same core premise. As well, as the Renjis. Not quite, but there's an episode where they encounter a parallel Earth where um, that seems to be inhabited exclusively by children, but they turn out to be hundreds of years old. And a life prolongation experiment has gone horrifyingly wrong, so you have these 200-year-old children, and then as soon as their massively delayed puberty hits, they turn into monsters. This is, I mean, this is similar to that, but obviously the 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 theme of people turn growing up and uh, uh, and becoming different does. Mm. Um, does feature. It's not that heavily foregrounded. You yeah. get you get occasional bits of um, people not wanting to become adults or having to face being an adult, but it's it could barely be said to be a metaphor. It they they genuinely just don't want to turn into fucking monsters. Yeah. Um, I'm sort of recommending it unreservedly, but it's weird um, and it's difficult to unpick. But the artwork is just absolutely beautiful. So Farrell Dalrymple is someone whose stuff I haven't seen in quite a few years. And it turns out it's because he was drawing 400 pages of this. Oh. Um, so I think the last thing of his that I saw was, I mean, he does, he does bits of a collection called Pop Gun War, hmm. which Image produce. Um, and the last sort of big bit of work that I saw of his was Omega the Unknown for Marvel, which Jonathan Lethem wrote oh yeah yeah so if you've oh, ever read he, what oh god what did he write the, the, the fortress of solitude no there was something else didn't he there was a, um, a novel city something well fortress of solitude was the novel it was about the oh, kids growing up there's another novel i'm thinking of then uh, he's written a few hmm. um but yeah jonathan latham sort of of that michael chabon era mm, mm. sort of difficult american writer um and yeah farrell Dalrymple, excellent artist this stuff is very, very odd, slightly trippy, but probably child appropriate. It feels okay. like it doesn't go too far. There's the odd bit of swearing and it's very, very odd in places. But it's sort of this mishmash of Twilight Zone and just flat out freak out stuff. Um, and it's very good. Mm. It's the first of a trilogy. Oh gosh. Which means I'm going to be completely fried by the end of it. As the other thing I've been reading is completely different. Um, and that's uh, Shoplifter by Michael Cho, um, which I've been looking forward to quite a while. Have He's, you mentioned that before? I think you might have mentioned it. I think it I mentioned it a few weeks ago. 
Um, it's just come out and he's a, he's an illustrator mainly. Mm. This is his first sort of, first sort of major comic, although he's always sort of been on the edge of the comic scene because he's done sort of bits of illustration here and there. Um, and it's about a young English graduate who has got, I'm not taking the piss here, stuck in a job in advertising and, um, Basically commits petty crimes in order to feel alive. Yeah, what have you actually been reading? No, no, this is this is a real book. Um, this isn't just, you know, I haven't just changed her name. She's not called Rogerina or something like that. Um, so she's she's trapped in the job she doesn't want, but she took because it's comfortable and, and allows her a lifestyle, but she's basically drifting and doesn't know what to do with herself. Um, and... The artwork is absolutely stunning. It looks quite a lot like Darwin Cook in that it's oh. big, thick, sweepy line work with just a single colour um, and often sort of big bits of saturation of colour. And he does the landscapes in a very similar way of scratchy bits, big, thick bits, lots mm. and lots of colour. So land works very, landscapes very similar to, to Parker. I like the sound of this. And here's the caveat. The writing is a little bit clunky. So this is a character who's meant to be completely dissociated from uh, her life. Well, not completely dissociated, but she's she's adrift. Mm. She's remarkably honest with herself for someone who's adrift, because most of the mm. story is told through her internal monologue. Um, she knows why she's dissatisfied. Mm. She knows that this isn't what she wants and that she's sort of let herself down and... Well, she knows what her end goal is, and and hmm. and yet there's sort of this that it doesn't quite reconcile the fact that she has this intense dissatisfaction, knows about it, and doesn't act. So there's a certain sense of paralysis. She hmm. has reasons, but it just didn't quite land that for me. I found it slightly slightly jarring. It's not overwhelming, um, but it's just it doesn't quite match up to the artwork or my perhaps ex- inflated expectations of mm. it. Um, but it worth a look? It's definitely worth a look. Yeah. Who's publishing it? I don't remember. I think it might be Pantheon. Okay. Um, and it's it looks they like a ladybird lovely book. books. It's it's beautifully designed apart from they one They did thing. Tale of Sand, didn't they? And, uh, that was Archaea. Oh, sorry, Archaea. I'm getting them mixed up. Um, classical shit. Um, there's there's one other problem which the, the book is absolutely beautifully designed almost from start to finish except for the lettering which is just really horrible digital lettering and it really stands out against oh, is this your very thing? organic this, this looking is the lettering art. rant again isn't it this yes is, this is if you're going to buy a digital typeface get a good one or preferably yeah or I mean I, I, I can't it's just it was just incredibly jarring because the whole thing is this very soft looking very organic um, Surely that's a great time to get a letterer in. Yes, to get a letter. So it's not a I traditional mean, comics publisher, so it might not have been something they thought of. They may have come from a design standpoint first. Well, in that case, you'd have hoped a better design, surely. But. Yes. So it's um, it's it's something that looks a little bit comic sansy. Is uh, very very uh, obvious, very sharp when you put it next to this quite soft background, and just. I know it. I know it's slow and painstaking, but it's just something where hand-drawn lettering would have looked so much, so so much better. Lettering um, is just—it's so important, and some people are absolutely awesome at it. I think it is being thought about a bit more at the moment. But you definitely see people being credited quite a lot at the moment. But it's just one of those things that it's invisible until it's bad. Yeah, and then it becomes incredibly obvious. And it was just very obvious in this sense. It's particularly jarring where you have sort of sound effects that are hand drawn, yeah. and then just this big digital artwork or big mm. bit of digital lettering. It's at its worst when it's used for the sound effects as well, and you have oh, mixtures of them, and it just doesn't look good. So I, I, I did like it. I have some caveats. It has rubbed you up the wrong way, Mister Conroy. It's, yes, it's bad touch. You are disgruntled. I am slightly disgruntled. I don't. I don't want to sound completely down on him, but mm. the, those those things did gently tweak my teeth. Yes. 
Not in a good way. No, you don't. You don't look like a gentleman that's had the good tweaking. So time travel then. So I think we've identified three main strands. This is our grand unified time travel theory. Mm. There's time travel stories about time travel. There's the sort of hard sci-fi. Yeah. There's time travel stories that are about regret and trying to change the past. And then there's Stan Lee. <laughs> or <laughs> more accurately, there's a shit ton of really continuity-heavy Silver Age comics from DC and Marvel. Yeah. I mean, well, I think the first two... Well, the third could feel like either of the others and the first two aren't mutually exclusive. But in terms of strong thematic stuff, yeah, I'd say so. So, you know, uh, something like Trillium is kind of in between. It's, it's big, weird sci-fi of the kind that we, we love, but it's it's regret and people finding each other and lives intertwined and continuity's not quite working. Whereas, you know, Age of Apocalypse is just throw everything at the wall and see what sticks using a slightly overwrought time travel premise as a Kickstarter. So we're um, we're both people who did most of our growing up in the 90s. Yeah, well, let's face it, we did most of our growing up in a piss-sodden bookstore, but the, the nominal growing up you're supposed to do when you're a teenager. Yeah, sure, why not? The the piss the piss wasn't... We didn't put the piss there. The piss was incidental. Um, I believe that's the title of your autobiography. Yeah, so mid-90s X-Men had a lot of this. Um, and a lot of very, very confusing in-media rares time travel mm. stuff. And Some of which works brilliantly, some of which is bollocks. So, you know, compare and contrast Days of Future Past with Age of Apocalypse. Days of Future Past works better. That's what I mean. Yeah. Right, so it's semi-coherent, although some of the bits in Age of Apocalypse are stronger. It also didn't introduce cable. Nothing. I, I think it may be an inviolable law that no good will come of cable. Have you have you gone back to um, Age of Apocalypse and looked at the artwork? No. It remains as a fond memory. Okay. Maybe, maybe leave it at that. Yes. Maybe just leave it at that. So the first sort, the, the the sort of big, hard sci-fi stuff. Nick Spencer writes it, really, doesn't he? Kind of a lot of it. Well, I read Wing is Hickman, isn't it? That's Jonathan Hickman. And then, yeah, Nick Spencer's done mm. Pax Romana. Yeah, um, The Infinite Vacation, does that count? It's more multiple worlds, isn't it? I don't think that, yeah, that's not time travel so much as um, as many worlds theory mm. and quantum entanglement. Um, which actually does quite well. Mm. I thought. I've heard it's good. I haven't checked it out yet. There's, so, I mean, there's, there's a few bits and pieces. Obviously, there's, I probably know a bit more about the X-Men or, or big ticket continuity stuff, but um, I don't know. What, what leans quite heavily on, on time travel? So I love, I love Pax Romana, which mm. is... Um, Orbiter, in a weird sort of a way. Yeah. Well, Pax, Pax Romana is... is um, the Catholic Church decided that things hadn't gone well enough for them, um, but they've been funding, secretly funding a time machine at CERN. And so they hire a mercenary, a supposedly devout mercenary force and send them back to the first days of Christianity in Rome, mm. whereby they are to supplant existing religion and ensure uh, Vatican dominance through modern weaponry. And it all goes a little bit peculiar. Who would have thought? But it's just, it's brilliant at doing hard sci-fi because it presents the entire thing as a history lesson hmm. and a history lesson of both timelines. And in sort of four short issues, it, it's quite text heavy. Hmm. It's, um, it's one of the ones that, um, Nick Spencer illustrated himself, hmm. which is, he's, He's worked with better artists than him, and he does a lot of sort of text-heavy and diagrammatic stuff. But the diagrammatic stuff is really, really good. Um, it's just very odd looking as a comic. Yeah. Um, it, it, but it's just it's so good at actually hanging together um, as a, a narrative that is purely about time travel, changing a single mm. point, and what happens and what radiates outwards from that. So I, I like that kind of thing. One of the things that frustrated me so much about the chimpanzee complex was that it just 
the time travel stuff was very promising and then just didn't go anywhere and degenerated into that kind of half-baked quantum wank that Warren Ellis would end up doing if he weren't paying attention. uh, Hand-wavy quantum physics is always kind of annoying, which is one of the reasons that I thought Infinite Vacation was so good, because it looks like it's going to be that, and then actually manages to use something that certainly resembles quantum physics in a narratively satisfying way. Red Wings one I always associate with um, Pax Romana because it's from Image at around the same time. And it's about time travel in a in a way. It's got a bit of a lazy fudge at the end, but where it's kind of parallel timelines, parallel universes thing. But it's um it's very aggressively about time travel and it tries to pick through a model of time travel that makes sense, kind of visualizing the universe visualizing time is a very different thing. It's got this idea of human perception being a filter on an entirely simultaneously occurring reality with the minimum possible unit of instance, something like Planck time or something, being offset, instances being offset from each other by something to do with frequency and vibration. It's obviously bollocks, but it's internally consistent bollocks that it manages to sort of hold together. Um... And then there's the narrative time travel, which is the sort of the recursive loop the whole thing's stuck in with the absent father who may or may not, he doesn't become the son, but who sort of goes round on a loop. I, I'm i just going to spoil it because it's, it's, you can't really talk about it without, but you, you've got... It's been out for three or four years yeah. now. The abs- You've got this absent father and, well, the father that gets lost in... Um, it, it, it's a war being fought across time, and the father goes down in a trans-temporal dogfight, and the son joins the military to kind of join the war. And the father eventually gets rescued by a far future version of the son, who turns out to be leading the aggressor that they're fighting. Their own future is attacking them, and it's kind of working through sort of abandonment issues, and the son thinking that you know, father destroyed the world, and then the father escapes and does something and implicitly the something he does is to go back in time and become the son's commanding officer and kind of generally try and smooth things over. It ends sort of unresolved, working through multiple possible futures and what have you. Um, but it's it, it's massively internally consistent with its own with its own time travel logic and it does sort of broadly shake out. It's also beautifully drawn and it, it's what gave me the idea for talking about time travel because um, what it made me wonder is, between it and Trillium, whether comics are, if not uniquely, then just very well suited to talking about things like time travel, because there's something inherent in the nature of the frames. So Red Wing has this wonderful device where it does things breaking up between panels and panel progressions as very... There's an expansion and contraction in the nature in which they're instances of time. So they're standard casual linear narrative progression, and then sometimes it's hundreds of years between them, and sometimes it's tiny micro slices cut through. So as someone ages a thousand years in a couple of minutes, it's it's, it's tiny sharded panels. So the fact that the fact that panel transition force attempt force but don't necessarily can but don't have to and can in different ways force a temporal disconnect is quite a useful way of telling stories about time. Mm -hmm. And Trillium does some similar similar stuff with the intertwining across time. Other things like the uh, I think you said the individual issues were forward and backwards with the two characters. Yeah. So yeah, and one of the issues is half and half forward and backward. Yeah, um, and it, it's got some. There's some really interesting spatial stuff that the comets can do. Basically, you can do some interesting spatial stuff to do interesting temporal stuff, and I rather like that. There's, um, this is a, a much more trite example, but the third volume of Atomic Robo, which mm. is... Um, but everyone loves Atomic Robo. They should do, yes. If they don't, they're just wrong. You would have to have a heart of purest excrement, excrement not to love Atomic Robo. Yeah. No, I agree. Those people are monsters. We don't mm. need them. Um, it's going to be the criteria it's, for my cull. It's going to turn out that someone we really like doesn't like Atomic Robo now, isn't it? Don't care. But I mean, if you, what if it's Clary? Well, this is how we find out. We need. We need to know. There's, um, there's, uh, the, the third volume is they're fighting Lovecraftian monsters. Mm. Um, and, uh, those being extra dimensional critters exist across time and space. And so you have each of the five issues at a different point in the character's past. So it gets to do backstory and it gets to do 
different time periods and, and different technology. Mm. Um, and it gets to introduce Carl Sagan, which is as just a character in it, which is fantastic because it means that at some point he yells, uh, when you return to your unobservable but empirically determined dimension of origin, tell them Carl Sagan sent you, which is just fucking brilliant because it's Carl Sagan with a massive stupid gun. I'm quite Um, down on introducing real people and real cult figures into fiction. I'm still angry about Seven Streets. But that's glorious. um, Have you read Seven Streets yet? No, this is the prose, the Paul Cornell prose novel, isn't it? When when and if you do... um, See if you have the same conundrum I do, is, is trying to work out which out of Paul Cornell and Neil Gaiman must have lost the bet. I understand that Neil Gaiman's in there as a, as a real character, and it's probably not the best thing. But um, It savagely fails to work, I just can't work out who lost the bet. <laughs> but this is great because it essentially ends up with the character trying to get himself eaten by the same monster across various different time periods so that he can team up with himself to beat it. Um... Which okay, is that's actually silly, gently but, brilliant. But it works. Um, but that's, that's again... So you sort of see him lose again and again of... and again, and then it cuts to this panel of uh, him stood around in various, like, 1930s version, who's dressed like a newsboy, and then mm. 70s version with a massive medallion and a belt buckle, and uh, just sort of stood back saying, okay, we're all here. Um, I d- stuff like that, where it's just kind of neat. It's just Again, nice. when, when Doctor Who is both being silly and being about time travel, it's like that and it's glorious. But, um... I don't know, I guess that's a wonderful example of the two modes that you talked about coming together. So there's time travel stories that are about time travel and there's time travel stories where time travel's in the background and it's about the other stuff. And that so, sounds yeah. like it's a really nice bit of both. It's very hard to ignore that there's a lot of quite hacky stuff. Um, so comics and superhero comics used to be a lot more sci-fi than they are now. I'm sure there's still enough. I'm, I'm sure there's still just as much sci-fi out there. It's just oh, what I mean is slipped. what I mean is that stuff like the the Flash, which if you're not familiar, is a story about a man who runs real fast. I heard there are some people who have never heard of the Flash. That's true. There are people who have never heard of the Flash. Uh, he's a guy that runs real fast, and um, because of that, there were a lot of sort of time travel stories, and he could go faster than light, and he had mm. a cosmic treadmill that would allow him to go anywhere in time, and yeah, so on, so on. That and comes from that era of the mass understanding of. So, in the same way of hand wavy quantum, is that gamma rays? Yeah. yeah. Every generation or every loose pop science epoch, if there is the dumb thing that's in pop science today, will be the dumb thing that's in your speculative fiction as a hand wavy excuse. Yes. So yeah, back in the day it was uh it was radiation and then fifteen, twenty years ago it was genetics and now it's I'm not sure what it is now. It's quantum physics. Again? Yeah. It was quantum physics twenty years ago. No, it was genetics. It was all mm. genetics. God. I know, it's depressing, isn't it? If only mm. we could go back and change things. We might have done it and no one knows. Maybe we did, and that's how we got stuck with the Internet of Things. People needed something else to wank on about. Maybe we've created our own horrifying present. What if this is the worst the worst of all timelines? Well, it doesn't have to be the worst. It just has to be the one that everyone settles on. I mean, there's one view of time travel. This probably doesn't stand up logically, but there's one view of time travel that states that you would never ever notice it because instantly everything would become the final version everyone agrees on. Although that would probably be, you know, just everything destroyed. Sort of imagine a very nihilistic version of time travel where people keep tweaking and tweaking and realise that they just can't get it right, so they just give up and go home. Which brings us to... Time travel about regret. Mm. So we talked about seconds a few weeks ago, which is about someone constantly creating alternative timelines, which, um, you know, uh, in various ways change her life and everything around her. And eventually it just eats away at reality and and does some unpleasant things. And seconds was okay, but it's nowhere near as good as We Can Fix It by Jess Fink, which is um, basically autobiography that starts out with her um, in the present day with her and her boyfriend having just bought a time machine because you can. Hmm. Um, and they've also bought sexy time travel outfits, although it's not sure if they're necessary or if they just like those. <laughs> uh, um, and she starts going back to sort of key points in her past to try and do better and, and be happier. 
And without really giving too much away, I think it's fairly obvious that the point is that without living through these things, you don't learn particularly very much mm. and that they're inherent to your character. And if you could remove or change them, you probably wouldn't end up a happier person by magic. No, I mean, um, you would have accidentally given yourself the life of a privileged airhead. Yeah. But she also goes out and makes out with herself a lot, which she classes as masturbation because it's always her. Um, I think that's but it's legit. kind of hilarious that that's the, the it's, first it's, place that it goes to. It's not cheating if it's future you. So I have a, I have a theory about time travel. Mm-hmm. That sounds grander than it is. It's more about time travel in narrative forms. Tell me, Mr. Comrie. I think if you do something like superhero comics and have time travel, or you have long-running things where they have time travel exists, but it's not the point, you're going to fuck them up really, really badly. Mm. The narratives are going to be an absolute mess. Are you familiar with the, the current X-Men comics? You're probably not. No, I kind of... I walked away a bit. That's That's okay, you're allowed. So in the current X-Men comics, first of all, you had you have the X-Men, present-day X-Men, and then the original team got brought forward in time. Oh, yes, that business. And then a future team got brought back in time. Oh, for fuck's sake. It gets a little bit exhausting. So you, um, I remember you talking in the past about how this stuff makes how how basically long running narratives like this are really inaccessible to anyone jumping on. Yes, I mean there are ways of obviating that, but broadly yes. Yeah. This compounds it in an insane way. Well it's um I want to say switching cost, it's not the well it's the switching in cost. The I'm gonna have to say onboarding. The onboarding experience is it just it has high cost and that's for those bad. of you who are not you know soulless human beings onboarding is what it sounds like it's getting someone on board to something bringing bringing them into the fold it's it's just it's one of those ain't no noun scenarios that makes me sad but um, it's one of those things that we say in advertising that makes us want to cry a little like really more than a little yeah. quite a lot yeah yeah, yeah. Why do we do it? No, we don't have a better word. Please, someone come up with a better word. Getting started. Doing things. Anyway, it, yeah, it massively adds overhead to like the experience of, of first starting to read this stuff. Um, but more than that, it also adds a cognitive load, even for long-term readers, the amount of stuff you need to hold in your head. So I've got this big bee in my bonnet about uses of context. Um, there's a vast, vast essay I will one day get around to writing about this, but... Kind of. No, you won't. You'll be dead. Mm. You'll kill me as soon as I start. No, I just mean you've got other stuff to do and then you'll die. Yeah, probably. Sandwiches and so on. Mm. They smell delicious. Mm. Um, But, yeah, there's a lot of stuff comics do where they, particularly long-running continuity of comics, where they just don't do themselves many favours on this stuff. And time travel is one of the worst offenders. So imagine jumping in in the middle of Age of Apocalypse. Or imagine jumping in, yeah, well, right now, if you've got a future team and a past team. and Things like the um, the recent uh, Days of Future Past movie was, I thought, pretty damn accessible, even for someone that didn't know. So I, I went to see it with um, with my partner, and he, he knows X-Men through the 90s cartoon. And that's about it. And so he thinks Morph's a real character then. <laughs> but he... Um, I thought it was fine throughout the entire cartoon. Then I, I started rewatching it a few months ago and just went, who the fuck is this guy? Um, but yeah, he he found it surprisingly accessible. I, I thought it was a pretty... You know, the, the, I, a measured I, and controlled time travel story can be done in these weird continuity worlds. but So the movie is is more its own thing and it's... It's much, much smaller. Mm. Oh, yes. So, well, well that, I think that's the key to it, is keep it constrained to something that you, the audience or the reader can hold in their head. X-Men have been going for 30 years before yeah. it got to the sort of big time travel storylines. And then, yeah, well, yeah, no, about about that. Um, and so the movies have an advantage there. But even in the films, I sort of felt that that was a fairly venal attempt at correcting a load of 
things in continuity. Mm. Um, it genuinely felt like a film that was there to reset previous continuity. To be fair, X-Men Days of Future Past gets an absolute blank check for explicitly writing over X-Men, X-Men 3. 3. Yeah. No, that's that's fair. They could have... So X- Days of Future Past could have, they, could, it could have been mm. one card, five minutes, X-Men 3 never happened, and two hours of Goatsy. And I would have given that shit five stars. Yeah, they could have just taken out an advert, though, saying X-Men 3 never happened. Um, or it could just have been Brian Singer with, you know, a camera phone running around in his garage, just making raspberry noises and yelling, fuck you, Brett Ratner, fuck you, fuck you, fuck you, until his, until his battery died. And I would have watched that, but I'd rather not have just been, I'd rather not have been charged money for the experience. Well, you could always perform the Transformers trick. What's the Transformers trick? Is this where you get filleted by a cutlery drawer? No, no. You remember when certain people, definitely not us, um, wanted to see Transformers, so we bought tickets for a good movie and then snuck into it. Oh yes, you give you you give your uh, money to some very worthy out, art house thing, and then you go into another screen in the multiplex, which will inevitably be empty because it's a multiplex in a small city, and no one ever goes. Yeah, I mean, this depends on there actually being something of quality showing at the multiplex at the same time as Transformers, which is not always a safe bet. In 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 a way, though, it's a form of time travel. It's not just I'm trying to bring us back. No, we're we just talking shite. And, yeah. So I think the best time travel stories are those that are about it um, or are succinct. Hmm. Um, but about it and internally consistent. I, I don't care if it's a pseudoscience plausible explanation of time travel. I care if it's internally consistent. If it follows its own logic. Um, but yeah, if the time, I think I think succinct is, is a good word there. If if the time travel is not front and center, then it needs to not be complex or obtrusive. It, it's got to be quiet in the background. I think. There's been a lot of it. Sorry, there was a sound wave just then that looked like a perfect uh, Mandelbrot set, which uh, I'm I'm pretty pleased with. I'll probably take a screenshot of it, put it in the show notes. That's that's nice. You look happier than I've ever seen you, which is just tragic. Really. Yeah, I didn't didn't think I was even how, smiling. How how little must you have in your life? Very little. Really does look like. So there's yeah, there's a lot of really wanky time travel stuff out there. Really wanky, like uh, recent Batman, mm. and Captain America did the exact same storyline. Um, his main character gets killed. Oh no, he's just come loose in time. And the Batman one was he comes back to the present uh. day via being Stone Age Batman, pirate Batman. Oh, for fuck's sake! Yeah, yeah. Now you you can do that if you're taking the piss, or at least if you're showing deliberate levity. It's, but this is Batman. It's it was not, it's it was not planet levity. It was pretty light. It was it was reasonably light. Um, and then there was the, yeah, similar thing in Captain America. He's mm. become unstuck in time. It's it's sort of used as a uh, basically a means of sort of trying to find the essence of the character while just removing it from canon, essentially, or at least removing it from anything that can affect canon while. <sighs> Going back in the past. This is the, let's have a big magic reset button. Let's do time travel. Well, you get so you get the actual time travel reset buttons in the DC stuff. Like mm. the Flash is the time travel character, and he will tend to be front and center in any capital C crisis, um, which will you know fucking, wipe something oh, else out. Fucking crises. Has there has there ever been a good one? I don't know. I mean, good crisis is kind of an oxymoron anyway. But no, I mean, um, have any of the Capital C crises been good? I don't know. It's not really the sort of stuff I read, mm. so I'm not best place to judge. But I'm just going to say no. Mm. Fuck it. No. No. They're rubbish. So in conclusion, or maybe to begin, mm. who knows? Time travel. Ooh. Mm, that was terrible. We're not. We're not selling this, are we? No. Um. It's weird that something that's been a staple of comics for so long has only recently been really well done. Well, there are probably loads of things we don't know about. Tell us in the comments. Um, but, God, I hate myself. No, um, I think 
So th- th- there's there's a lot of. I assume it just follows a similar trajectory to ta- to sci-fi, which is interesting time travel stories, quite speculative. Then it gets a bit mass markety and gets used as a go-to gimmick, and then it pops its head up again as something quite interesting that actually focuses on it. I think that would be my my lazy guess. I don't know. I There's the continuity-heavy stuff, the, the Type 3 time travel bits and pieces, and, and the, the, the uh, Type 2 stuff that's always existed, which is use it to tell a human story. But really taking advantage of the affordance of the medium, like using panel juxtaposition, panel progress, spatial layout, using what makes comics comics to do interesting things with time, things with time travel. I personally have only seen recently. There must be loads more. There must be loads more, but... So there's um well there's there's an early one that Grant Morrison keeps referencing as one of the best bits of comic art ever, which is um the very first Silver Age issue of the Flash, right? Where the front the 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 front cover is a reel of film, and he's steadily accelerating off. Mm the frame each time so he's out outpacing the film and then bursting through the front so it's definitely been done um and done well i think that was carmine infantino who did that cover um but given the sort of pace of production comics like that at Mm. the time it would never be it would it, it would never be something thoughtful or consistent it would maybe be good by accident yeah um We've got a few more questions have come in. Oh, well, we Shall we take some questions? This one's from uh, Chris in Cambridge. Hello, Chris. How much time would a time traveller travel through if a time traveller could travel through time? You, Personal you, preference. Surely axiomatically kind of an infinite amount, but... Yes. Very very much depends on the, me- the means of travel. I don't know. I didn't really think about that answer. I'm just saying words. He's got a follow-up. Um, why are we in the rubbish timeline where Hitler lived and bad shit keeps happening? Uh, I was in Germany last week. Hitler's definitely dead. Bad shit keeps happening because humans everywhere are fucking terrible. Roger, your thoughts? Uh, trying not to mutter something incoherent about theodicy. Um, I have no idea. Uh, sorry, why are we in the rubbish timeline? Yes. I think... No, no. Is this because I grew a goatee? Yeah, yeah. Shit. I think that is why we're in the rubbish timeline. It's there are so many reasons so, that that was ill-advised. Well, it's, but... it's, it's one of those classic causation correlation things. People assume that you find people with goatees in the bad timeline. No, that's what causes it. That's why you shouldn't grow a goatee. They're like a sort of fourth-dimensional parasite. Yeah, well, yeah, it's it's not good. Yeah, third and fourth, I guess. Mm. Just attaching to your face and doing bad things. Yeah, it just kind of flips everything. And and now we're... Look, I mean, it, I've got to watch this shit. Yeah, no, you're, you've definitely got some holiday beard coming in. Yeah. Um, the, do, the, we, do we have any more questions? The show community... Uh, we do, we've got one more. Mm. The show community has um, an episode where something rests on a dice throw, and from that point on, everything's split into six. Mm. Um, Is this well done? Because it sounds like it w- was well done, it would be a delight. It jumps in and out. But of of other timelines when it's useful for a joke, mm. but there's one that's constantly referred to as the darkest timeline, um, where one of the characters has lost an arm, another one's mad, um, and the Arbed, the slightly uh, slightly autistic character, keeps trying to get people to wear cut out felt goatees. <laughs> it's a good example of of mm. sort of uh, parallel worlds time travel done well. One last question. This one is from uh, William in Welling Garden City. Hello, William. And it says, if you could do it all again, would you still have chosen to do it all again? He's gone for a philosophical one there. He's talking about determinism. Um, But he's... I don't know, because I don't think you've got free will, basically because of the alcoholism. (laughs) So there's, there's a layer of abstraction, which I'm going to call wine that exists on top of existing free will arguments and and determinism. Well, to be fair, that only constrains my um, free will in certain particular scenarios. Do I walk past or into the off-license? 
Yes. Do I'm you... broadly speaking a free agent much of the time. Well, Barocca allowing anyway. Hmm. I don't know. This would, is this is this, is this is what well, you can... are we in? Are we in an iterative model? Are we in a final universe model? Do we accept paradoxes? I, there are so many ways of, of approaching last Tuesdayism time travel. God, we didn't even get to talk about Dark City, mainly because that's a film and this is a comics podcast. Um, but we will wang on about more or less anything. So, um, if you got to do it again, would you have chosen to do it all again? Um, for the purposes of comics, I would suggest that the narrative imperative demands that, yes, yes, you would, because the general only sane narrative approach to this is that you kind of are always stuck in a loop, but you ignore it by dealing with the progress and always having someone that remembers it. You leave one The person planetary in, model. You leave one person in the time loop and carry on with the wider story. Wolverine, Days of Future, in the movie, Days of a Kitty Pride, in actual Days of Future Past. Um... But, uh, the, the, the standard the standard lazy narrative model says that yes you would but it sort of wouldn't matter I would probably have um, I would probably have chosen to have tried mustard earlier I was quite afraid of mustard until I was about 18 really? yeah I didn't really like okay. it yeah, yeah. Would, that would have been the big change I would have made. I, I would, I would. At least I'd like to think I would have done. Would I have done? Who knows? I don't know, I don't know. What would the consequences? What would a universe where I like mustard at a younger age have been? What would that have been like? I'd, um, I'd probably have, have, have never drunk creme de menthe. Just go back in time and slap that shit out of my adolescent hand. I would like to not have drunk creme de menthe, but then at some point you're going to be a grown up, and you're going to go. Maybe mint liqueur is okay. You haven't had that formative experience it's like True. we can fix it mm. you need to get through this stuff so that you don't drink creme de menthe in front of people as an actual adult and let yourself down or drambuie or drambuie or you could not go out with someone who drinks drambuie through choice it was just the once it was it was just the once wasn't it see drambuie is another drambuie creme de menthe contro mm. all classic Teenage, back of the parents' drink cabinet, they won't miss this shit, yep. drinks. Yep. And anyone who voluntarily drinks those in a bar is clearly working through some stuff. Yeah. Or they're a time traveller, mm. because they didn't get this shit out of their system early enough. And by out of their system, I mean violently purge mm. um, the next morning. Dude could have been a time traveller, actually. I mean, he kind of does dress a bit steampunk. This is a long time ago, though. He's just a man with a large coat. He's not a fucking time traveller. He's a man with a large coat who drinks drambuie. Stop self-aggrandizing. Oh. Oh. Good night. <laughs>